0: Chapter 9, Part 2 of Life of Henry David Thoreau by Henry Salt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9, Part 2 Society, then, is to be reformed, according to Thoreau's doctrine, by individual effort, and the gospel which he preaches to the individual is that of simplicity simplification of life by which is meant a questioning and perhaps rejection of the various artificial comforts and luxuries and a dependence only on the actual necessaries food shelter clothing and fuel is repeatedly advocated by thoreau from his own practical experience as lending strength courage and self-reliance to the individual character and so in proportion to the extent of its practice to the state it must be repeated that this doctrine however strange and unpalatable it may be to the popular mood is not that of an ascetic The simplicity which Thoreau inculcates does not, like asceticism, renounce the luxuries of life by way of a religious penance, but because it is convinced that life, on the whole, is healthier and happier without them. What he urges is not that men should deny themselves certain comforts while they still believe them to be comforts but that in each case they should test the truth by practical experience, and not continue to regard as necessaries many things which a day's trial would prove to be superfluous and perhaps actually harmful. This distinction between a natural taste and an acquired habit is a vital one, yet it is generally overlooked by the opponents of Thoreau's philosophy. He laughs at the absurdity of those writers who talk of the usefulness of artificial wants in drawing out the resources of nature, since every artificial want must of necessity bring with it its own nemesis of proportionally increased toil, whereas, on the contrary, the practice of hardihood and frugality is productive of health independence and restfulness both to body and mind in a word the simplicity which he preaches is based not on the repression but rather on the better gratification of the true pleasures of existence which is the more enjoyable to indulge the spiritual instinct or the sensual let each man make his own choice but let him at least be sure that he is really following his own tastes and not merely conforming to the dictates of custom and tradition the charge often made against thoreau that he is in opposition to the course of modern progress and prefers savagery to civilization is only tenable on a very short-sighted and perfunctory view of the meaning of his gospel he himself notes in his diary that his lectures used to call forth such inquiries as would you have us return to the savage state a misconception of his meaning which was doubtless rendered more general by his brevity of speech epigrammatic tone and characteristic unwillingness to explain himself but a careful study of his writings as a whole and of walden in particular can leave us in no doubt as to his true position on this point he expressly states his belief that civilization is a real advance in the condition of mankind and that the farmer displaces the indian because he redeems the meadow and so makes himself stronger and in some respects more natural. But while making this admission, he points out what is too often overlooked by comfortable statisticians, that though the majority of civilized men are better situated than the savage, there is a minority which is not so. He asserts, then, that the problem to which we should apply ourselves is how to combine the hardiness of the savage with the intellectualness of the civilized man. When he inveighs against the numerous follies and defects and diseases observable in civilization, he does so not because he doubts or denies its superiority to the savage state, but because— to quote his own words he wishes to show at what a sacrifice this advantage is at present obtained and to suggest that we may possibly so live as to secure all the advantage without suffering any of the disadvantage In the same connection, it should be noted that Thoreau exhibits no reactionary feeling against the strides made by science and modern mechanical invention, however strongly he may protest against the unnecessary desecration of natural scenery. He descants on the enterprise, courage, and alertness of commerce— Which goes steadily on its path undismayed and unhindered by the obstacles of climate and season, and declares that it cheered him in his Walden Hermitage when he heard the train rattle past each morning on its road to Boston. All he desiderates is a worthier object as the end and aim of so much toil and industry nor was he, as some have supposed, an enemy to art, though he may have been, as Emerson says, insensible to some fine traits of culture. He did not wish to banish ornament from our dwellings, except such as is external and superficial, a mere conventional and fashionable appendage, instead of what it should be, a simple and natural growth it may here be worth while to inquire how far these principles of individualism and simplicity were meant by thoreau to be applied and how far they were rightly applicable to the social question of his time there is no indication whatever in any of his writings that he intended his doctrines to be understood directly and literally as containing a panacea for human ills he did not wish his fellow-beings to leave their towns and villages in order to live in shanties nor was he under the impression as some of his critics would have us believe that the inhabitants of crowded cities were free to march out and live in blissful seclusion in some neighboring wood the whatever the limitations of his genius may have been was a shrewd and clear-sighted man and if any of his readers find themselves attributing to him such ineptitudes as those just mentioned they may feel assured that the misunderstanding is on their own side and that by lack of sympathy they have failed to grasp his true meaning it should be remembered that he wrote primarily and immediately for his own fellow-citizens of concord and a limited new england audience and further THAT THE SOCIAL PROBLEM WAS FAR LESS DIFFICULT AND COMPLEX AT THAT TIME IN NEW ENGLAND THAN IT IS NOW AFTER A LAPSE OF THIRTY OR FORTY YEARS. EXTREME POVERTY WAS A RARE EXCEPTION AND NOT A NORMAL CONDITION AMONG THE PEASANTRY OF CONCORD. THERE WAS MORE ELBOW ROOM AND OPPORTUNITY FOR INDIVIDUAL EFFORT THAN IN AN ENGLISH COUNTRY TOWN so that an example such as that set by thoreau was not by any means the impossibility which it would have been in other places and under other circumstances as a matter of fact he seldom recommended his own way of living to his neighbors or fellow townsmen being convinced that each man must shape his own career though in one or two cases As in the conversation with a thriftless Irish laborer recorded in Walden, we find him pointing out the advantages of a frugal diet, since those who can dispense with tea, coffee, butter, milk, and flesh meat can also spare themselves the heavy labor which is required to purchase these unnecessary comforts but in so far as Thoreau addressed his doctrines to the general public. It was distinctly not with the intent of persuading them to live as he did, but in the hope of stimulating independent thought by the force of his example and admonition, and of drawing attention to those simple common-sense principles without which there can be no lasting health or contentment either for individual or community. Mr. Stevenson has remarked of Thoreau that in his whole works one can find no trace of pity. If it were possible at all to maintain this assertion, it could only be in the limited sense that he dwells usually on the iniquity of the wrongdoer rather than on the feelings of the sufferer. He does not, for instance, express his pity for the slave, though we know from the accounts already quoted how strong his pity was, but he shows it in a more practical form by his attitude towards the slaveholder. It is true that, with his characteristic dislike of system, he disclaims any distinct theory of compassion while his optimistic belief in the beneficence of nature prevents him from repining at the mere existence of suffering and wrong. Nevertheless, Thoreau is himself one of the humanest of writers, and has contributed to the literature of humanitarianism some of its most striking protests. His detestation of war was shown in his refusal to pay the poll tax at the time when the United States made an unjustifiable attack on Mexico. He declares fighting to be a damnable business, and at variance with the will and conscience of those compelled to engage in it, soldiers, colonel, captain, corporal, powder, monkeys, and all. His opinions concerning slaveholding, it is not necessary to say more. But there is a remarkable saying of his about John Brown which deserves to be quoted in this connection. Noting the fact that Brown had not received a college education, but had studied liberty in the great university of the West, he adds, such were his humanities and not any study of grammar. He would have left a Greek accent slanting the wrong way and righted up a falling man. It would be well if all our professors and students of literae humaniores would lay this admirable sentiment to heart. Humanity to animals was one of the most conspicuous virtues in Thoreau's character, and is constantly, if indirectly, advocated in his writings. His conception of the animal races has been described as a sort of mystic evolution. Thus he regards the foxes as rudimental burrowing men, still standing on their defense, awaiting their transformation, while the dog is to the fox as the white man to the red. The horse appears to him as a human being in a humble state of existence, and the human way in which the oxen behave when loosed from the yoke at evening affects him pathetically. The wild shaggy moose in the main forests are moose men, clad in a sort of Vermont gray or homespun, and he expresses respect even for the skunk for its suggested resemblance to one of the human aborigines of the country. Individuality is recognized and respected by him in the non-human no less than the human races. He complains of man's not educating the horse, not trying to develop his nature, but merely getting work out of him. It was this sense of brotherhood, as I have already remarked, which gave Thoreau his extraordinary power over beasts and birds, and his singular humanity to animals is due to the same source. During the greater part of his life he was a vegetarian in practice, and in Walden has made profession of his faith in the humanities of diet. His position as a naturalist was strongly influenced by the same humane sentiments. His methods were not those of the anatomist and man of science. He held that nature must be viewed humanly to be viewed at all. That is, her scenes must be associated with humane affections. She was to him a living entity, to be loved and reverenced, and not a subject for cold and unimpassioned observation accordingly in his remarks on nature and natural history there is a decided prevalence of that peculiarly introspective and moralizing mood characteristic of the poet naturalist as distinct from the scientist which seeks to transmute the mere facts and results of external observation into symbolical thoughts and images which may illustrate the life of man. It is this human self-consciousness that differentiates Thoreau from the naturalist and observer, pure and simple, such as Gilbert White. It has been remarked by Mr. John Burroughs that it was supernatural rather than natural history that Thoreau studied, AND THAT HE MADE NO DISCOVERIES OF IMPORTANCE IN THE SCIENTIFIC FIELD, BECAUSE HE LOOKED THROUGH NATURE INSTEAD OF AT HER, AND WAS MORE INTENT ON THE NATURAL HISTORY OF HIS OWN THOUGHT THAN OF THAT OF THE BIRD. IT IS NO DOUBT TRUE THAT Thoreau's KEENNESS OF VISION WAS GENERALLY IN PROPORTION TO THE INTEREST OF THE SUBJECT WITH WHICH HE HAD TO DEAL he saw what he already had in mind. His observations, however, are not the less important because they differ from those acquired by the ordinary method. On the contrary, they are more valuable on that account, inasmuch as the poet is higher and rarer than the naturalist." nathaniel hawthorne has recorded how thoreau was enabled by this inner faculty to see the water lily as few others could see it he has beheld beds of them unfolding in due succession as the sunrise stole gradually from flower to flower a sight not to be hoped for unless when a poet adjusts his inward eye to a proper focus with the outward organ this idealist quality constitutes the peculiar property of thoreau's teaching on the subject of nature but that it did not disqualify him from doing good service as a scientific observer may be gathered from the remarkable tribute which has been paid to him by one of Darwin's interpreters. Like no one else, he knew the meaning of every note and movement of bird and beast and fish and insect born out of due time just too early for the great change in men's views of nature which transferred all interest in outer life from the mere dead things one sees in museums to their native habits and modes of living he was yet in some sort a vague and mystical anticipatory precursor of the modern school of functional biologists Page after page of his diary notes facts about the pollen showers of pine trees, the fertilization of skunk cabbage, the nesting of birds, the preferences of mink or muskrat, the courtship of butterflies, all of a piece with those minute observations on which naturalists nowadays build their most interesting theories. Footnote Grant Allen, Fortnightly Review, May, 1888. End footnote. The conclusion of our view of Thoreau's doctrines thus brings us back to the contention with which we started. He was an idealist who looked through the outer husk and surface of life, and saw the true reality in what to most men is but a vision and a dream he had in large measure what emerson calls the philosopher's perception of identity the phenomena of time and space did not affect him walden pond was to him an atlantic ocean a moment was eternity the means on which he relies for the correction of popular delusions are the independence of the individual mind and those simple practical modes of living which alone can keep a man independent finally for all his asperity of tone in the reproof of what he considered to be blameworthy He was a firm believer in the gradual progress and ultimate renovation of mankind, being convinced that improvement is the only excuse for reproduction. It was no cynical or misanthropic faith that found expression in his writings. End of chapter 9 Chapter 10, Part 1 of Life of Henry David Thoreau by Henry Salt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10, Part 1 The lack of system which is noticeable in Thoreau's character may be traced in the style of his writings as plainly as in his philosophical views he was not careful as to the outer form and finish of his works for he believed that the mere literary contour is of quite secondary importance in comparison with the inner animating spirit let the worthiness of the latter once be assured and the former will fall naturally into its proper shape furthermore although as we have seen writing was more and more recognized by him as his profession in his later years he was at all times conscious of a fuller and higher calling than that of the literary man as he valued nature before art so he valued life before literature he both preached and practiced A combination of literary work and manual, of the pen and of the spade, of the study and of the open sky. He protested against that tendency in our civilization which carries division of labor to such an extent that the student is deprived of healthy outdoor work while the laborer is deprived of opportunity for self-culture. He imagines the case of some literary professor, who sits in his library writing a treatise on the huckleberry, while hired huckleberry pickers and cooks are engaged in the task of preparing him a pudding of the berries. A book written under such conditions will be worthless, there will be none of the spirit of the huckleberry in it i believe in a different kind of division of labor and that the professor should divide himself between the library and the huckleberry field his opinions on the subject of literary style are clearly stated in the week and are no doubt in great measure a record of his own practice can there be any greater reproach than an idle learning learn to split wood at least the necessity of labor and conversation with many men and things to the scholar is rarely well remembered steady labor with the hands which engrosses the attention also is unquestionably the best method of removing palaver and sentimentality out of one's style both of speaking and writing if he has worked hard from morning till night though he may have grieved that he could not be watching the train of his thoughts during that time yet the few hasty lines which at evening record his day's experience will be more musical and true than his freest but idle fancy could have furnished. Surely the writer is to address a world of laborers, and such therefore must be his own discipline. He will not idly dance at his work who has wood to cut and cord before nightfall in the short days of winter but every stroke will be husbanded and ring soberly through the wood and so will the strokes of that scholar's pen which at evening record the story of the day ring soberly yet cheerily on the ear of the reader long after the echoes of his axe have died away such were in fact the conditions under which thoreau wrote many of the pages of the journal from which his own essays were constructed and whatever may be thought of the force of his general principle there can be no doubt that in his particular case the result was very felicitous it was his pleasure and his determination that his writing should be redolent of the open-air scenery by which it was primarily inspired. I trust, he says of the week, and the same may be said of all his volumes, it does not smell so much of the study and library, even of the poet's attic, as of the fields and woods that it is a hypethral or unroofed book, lying open under the ether and permeated by it, open to all weathers, not easy to be kept on a shelf. In this way Thoreau added a new flavor to literature by the unstudied freshness and wildness of his tone, and succeeded best where he made least effort to be successful it is only out of the fullness of thinking says mr r l stevenson that expression drops perfect like a ripe fruit and when thoreau wrote so nonchalantly at his desk it was because he had been vigorously active during his walk even mr lowell a far less friendly critic is compelled on this point to express his admiration with every exception there is no writing comparable with the rose in kind that is comparable with it in degree where it is best his range was narrow but to be a master is to be a master there are sentences of his as perfect as anything in the language and thoughts as clearly crystallized his metaphors and images are always fresh from the soil this success although naturally and unconsciously attained had of course been rendered possible in the first instance by an honest course of study for thoreau like every other master of literary expression, had passed through his strict apprenticeship of intellectual labor. Though comparatively indifferent to modern languages, he was familiar with the best classical writers of Greece and Rome, and his style was partly formed on models drawn from one of the great eras in English literature the post-elizabethan period it is a noticeable fact that mother-tongue was a word which he loved to use even in his college days and the homely native vigor of his own writings was largely due to the sympathetic industry with which he had labored in these quiet but fertile fields nor must it be supposed because he did not elaborate his work according to the usual canons, that he was a careless or indolent writer. On the contrary, it was his habit to correct his manuscripts with unfailing diligence. He deliberately examined and re-examined each sentence of his journal, before admitting it into the essays which he sent to the printer." finding that a certain lapse of time was necessary before he could arrive at a satisfactory decision. His absolute sincerity showed itself as clearly in the style of his writing as in the manner of his life. The one great rule of composition, and if I were a professor of rhetoric I should insist on this, is to speak the truth this first this second this third in his choice of subjects it was the common that most often enlisted his sympathy and attention the theme he says is nothing the life is everything give me simple cheap and homely themes i omit the unusual the hurricanes and earthquakes, and describe the common. This has the greatest charm and is the true theme of poetry. Give me the obscure life, the cottage of the poor and humble, the workdays of the world, the barren fields. But while he took these as the subjects for his pen, he so idealized and transformed them by the power of his imagination as to present them in aspects altogether novel and unsuspected it being his delight to bring to view the latent harmony and beauty of all existent things and thus indirectly to demonstrate the unity and perfection of nature numerous passages might be quoted from thoreau's works which exhibit these picturesque and suggestive qualities he had a poet's eye for all forms of beauty moral and material alike and for the subtle analogies that exist between the one class and the other in a word he was possessed of a most vivid and quickening imagination his images and metaphors are bold novel and impressive as when to take but a couple of instances he alludes to the lost anchors of vessels wrecked off the coast of cape cod as the sunken faith and hope of mariners to which they trusted in vain or describes the autumnal warmth on the sheltered side of walden as the still-glowing embers which the summer, like a departing hunter, had left. And, with all his simplicity and directness of speech, he has an unconscious, almost mystic eloquence which stamps him unmistakably as an inspired writer, a man of true and rare genius.' so that it has been well said of him that he lived and died to transfuse external nature into human words. In this respect, his position among prose writers is unique. No one, unless it be Richard Jeffreys, can be placed in the same category with him. And so far as he studied the external form of his writings— the aim and object which Thoreau set before him may be summed up in one word. Concentration. He avows his delight in sentences which are concentrated and nutty. The distinctive feature of his own literary style could not have been more accurately described. The brief, barbed, epigrammatic sentences which bristle throughout his writings pungent with shrewd wisdom and humour are the appropriate expression of his keen thrifty nature there is not a superfluous word or syllable but each passage goes straight to the mark and tells its tale as the work of a man who has some more urgent duty to perform than to adorn his pages with artificial tropes and embellishments. He is fond of surprising and challenging his readers by the piquancy and strangeness of his sayings, and his use of paradox is partly due to the same desire to stimulate and awaken curiosity, partly to his wayward and contradictory nature. The dangers and demerits of a paradoxical style are sufficiently obvious, and no writer has ever been less careful than Thoreau to safeguard himself against misunderstandings on this score. He has consequently been much misunderstood, and will always be so save where the reader brings to his task a certain amount of sympathy and kindred sense of humor. To those who are not gifted with the same sense of the inner identity, which links together many things that are externally unlike, some of Thoreau's thoughts and sayings must necessarily appear to be a fair subject for ridicule. Yet, that he should have been charged with possessing no humor would be inexplicable, save for the fact that the definitions of that quality are so various and so vague. Broad wit and mirthful genial humor he certainly had not, and he confessedly disliked writings in which there is a conscious and deliberate attempt to be amusing." he found rabelais for instance intolerable it may be sport to him he says but it is death to us a mere humorist indeed is a most unhappy man and his readers are most unhappy also but though he would not or could not recognize humor as a distinct and independent quality and even attempted as we are told to eliminate what he considered levity from some of his essays, he nonetheless enjoyed keenly, and himself unmistakably exhibited, the quiet, latent, unobtrusive humor which is one of the wholesome and saving principles of human life. Among Thoreau's own writings, Walden is especially pervaded by this subtle sense of humor— Grave, dry, pithy, sententious, and almost saturnine in its tone, yet perhaps for that very reason the more racy and suggestive to those readers who have the faculty for appreciating it. It has been remarked that it is impossible to classify Thoreau. He cannot be called a man of science, he cannot be called a poet he cannot even be called a prose poet footnote athenaeum october eighteen eighty two and footnote if classification of any kind be desirable in the case of such a protestant and freelance, he should probably be called an essayist with a strong didactic tendency he could not as his friend channing observes mosaic his essays but preferred to give himself free play by throwing them into the narrative and autobiographical form the week and walden the two volumes which were published in his lifetime are both framed on this principle a more or less slight record of personal experience being made the peg on which to hang a great deal of ethical moralizing and speculation apart from all question of the value of the opinions advanced the charm of those books lies mainly in their intellectual alertness keen spiritual insight and brilliant touches of picturesque description Few authors have created such a rich store of terse, felicitous epithems, or have drawn such vivid and sympathetic sketches of natural scenery. Numerous examples of his laconic, incisive utterances have already been incidentally quoted. Here is a characteristic open-air picture of a bright, breezy day on the Concord River, where he spent so much of his time. Many waves are there agitated by the wind, keeping nature fresh, the spray blowing in your face, reeds and rushes waving, ducks by the hundred, all uneasy in the surf and the raw wind, just ready to rise and now going off with a clatter and a whistling like riggers straight for Labrador, flying against the stiff gale with reefed wings, or else circling round first with all their paddles briskly moving just over the surf to reconnoiter you before they leave these parts. Gulls wheeling overhead, muskrats swimming for dear life wet and cold with no fire to warm them by that you know of their labored homes rising here and there like haystacks and countless mice and moles and winged titmice along the sunny windy shore cranberries tossed on the waves and heaving up on the beach their little red skiffs beating about among the alders. Such healthy, natural tumult as proves the last day is not yet at hand. And there stand all around the alders and birches and oaks and maples full of glee and sap, holding in their buds until the waters subside. Here, too, To show the more human side of Thoreau's genius is one of the picturesque character sketches which are far from uncommon in his writings. I can just remember an old brown-coated man who was the Walton of this stream, who had come over from Newcastle, England, with his son, the latter a stout and hardy man who had lifted an anchor in his day straight old man he was, who took his way in silence through the meadows, having passed the period of communication with his fellows, his old experienced coat hanging long and straight and brown as the yellow pine bark, glittering with so much smothered sunlight if you stood near enough, no work of art but naturalized at length. I often discovered him unexpectedly amid the pads and the grey willows when he moved, fishing in some old country method, for youth and age then went a-fishing together, full of incommunicable thoughts, perchance about his own Tyne and Northumberland. He was always to be seen in serene afternoons haunting the river, AND ALMOST RUSTLING WITH THE SEDGE, SO MANY SUNNY HOURS IN AN OLD MAN'S LIFE, AND TRAPPING SILLY FISH, ALMOST GROWN TO BE THE SUN'S FAMILIAR, WHAT NEED HAD HE OF HAT OR raiment ANY, HAVING SERVED OUT HIS TIME, AND SEEN THROUGH SUCH THIN DISGUISES? i have seen how his coeval fates rewarded him with the yellow perch and yet i thought his luck was not in proportion to his years and i have seen when with slow steps and weighed down with aged thoughts he disappeared with his fish under his low roofed house on the skirts of the village i think nobody else saw him Nobody else remembers him now, for he soon after died and migrated to new Tyne streams. His fishing was not a sport, not solely a means of subsistence, but a sort of solemn sacrament and withdrawal from the world, just as the aged read their Bibles. End of chapter 10 part 1 chapter 10 part 2 of life of henry david thoreau by henry salt this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter 10 part 2 Those of Thoreau's shorter essays, which deal with natural history and outdoor life, are to be found reprinted in Excursions, a volume published the year after his death, with the well-known prefatory memoir by Emerson. These excursions have been described as landscapes in miniature, embracing every feature of new england summers and winters footnote professor nichols american literature and footnote there is a wild racy indefinable charm about them which is all their own they are by no means well finished and rounded off when viewed from an artistic or shall we say artificial standpoint for thoreau here loves to gossip on without regard to the laws of essay writing and will not deny himself the pleasure of quoting largely when the whim takes him from his favorite poets or from the old prose chroniclers who wrote of the places which he visited nor will he spare the minutest details which concern his own experiences yet the final effect is altogether delightful and no reader who has once caught and appreciated the rare mystic flavor of these wildings of literature could ever regret that they were not subjected to the conventional pruning They can no more be taken to the literary market and weighed in the critical balance than their prototype, the wild apple, which furnished Thoreau with some of his choicest themes. The anti-slavery and reform papers, which were first included in the Yankee in Canada volume, and afterwards in the miscellanies, are more direct and didactic in aim than the excursions some of thoreau's most brilliant and pungent sayings are to be found in these essays of which the very best are the plea for john brown the most impassioned of all his writings and life without principle which conveys in brief form the substance of his protest against the follies of modern society. The original source which provided material for all these essays and volumes was the Daily Journal, which was kept by Thoreau with great fullness and regularity from 1837, the year when he left college, to a short time before his death, in 1862, and amounted in all to no less than thirty large volumes. This diary formed a complete chronicle of his outward and inward life, and was not a mere collection of chance jottings, but a private autobiography, written throughout with the utmost seriousness and devotion useful not only as a record of facts and thoughts, but also as a means of stimulating further meditations. We have seen, in the story of Thoreau's life, how his daily walks were not, as with most men, a time of leisure and recreation, but an essential part of his day's work and of his duties as poet-naturalist. He went to hilltop or forest or swamp or river bank, not as an aimless wanderer seeking to while away an afternoon, but as an inspector going his rounds. And he paid his visits deliberately and on principle to such animals, birds, nests, trees, or flowers as he happened to have under observation. He took notes on the spot, even when he walked, as was frequently the case in the night-time. And on his return home he expanded these notes into graphic descriptions, interspersed with appropriate meditations, which sometimes, in the earlier volumes of the journal, took the form of verse. His notes on natural history constitute a large portion of the diary, and are often tinged with that tone of mysticism which so largely dominated his character. From this journal Thoreau drew freely when preparing his essays or lectures, as the case might be, but before being given to the world, every passage and sentence underwent further careful revision. After his death, the unpublished manuscripts and diaries remained for fourteen years in the charge of his sister Sophia, who, at her death, in 1876, bequeathed them to her brother's friend and correspondent, Mr. Blake. Footnote. Soon after Thoreau's death, there was a talk of publishing the complete journal, but Sophia Thoreau could not make up her mind to it, and the plan was dropped. In 1866 she wrote to a friend, These papers are very sacred to me, and I feel inclined to defer giving them to the public for the present. footnote. Portions of the journal have since been edited by Mr. Blake in four volumes, under the titles of Early Spring in Massachusetts, Summer, Autumn, and Winter, various passages, written in different years, being grouped together according to the days on which they were written, so as to give a connected picture of the seasons. This arrangement was apparently foreshadowed by Thoreau, who makes a note in his journal of a book of the seasons, each page of which should be written in its own season and out of doors, or in its own locality, wherever it may be. The years represented in these volumes are mostly between 1850 and 1860, the Walden period having presumably been almost exhausted by Thoreau himself. It has been noticed by a writer in the Academy, 1884, that the published journal contains no dates between the 10th of April and the 1st of June. This deficiency is, however, to some extent supplied by the extracts given in the Atlantic Monthly in 1878 under the titles April Days and May Days a volume of thoreau's letters was edited by emerson in eighteen sixty five he was not what is known as a regular correspondent and the number of his extant letters is not very great not to have written a note for a year he said is with me a very venial offence some are accustomed to write many letters others very few. I am one of the last. The letters included in the volume of 1865 are, as a rule, much more severely transcendental in tone than the essays and diaries. Abominably didactic, Channing called them, and their seriousness is seldom relieved by the keen humor of Walden." It seems that Emerson, in selecting them, made it his object to exhibit a perfect piece of stoicism, and therefore inserted only a few of the domestic letters, which showed the other and tenderer side of Thoreau's character, an arrangement which was justly described by Sophia Thoreau as not quite fair to her brother." This one-sided impression has now been corrected by the volume of Familiar Letters, edited by Mr. Sanborn in 1894, which gives a far wider and fairer idea of the scope of Thoreau's character. Last in the list of Thoreau's writings, there remains to be considered his poetry strictly speaking he can hardly be called a poet at all for though he had a large gift of the poetic inspiration he lacked the lyrical fire and melodious utterance which are at least equally indispensable to the creation of a true poem his verses are therefore interesting less for their own intrinsic value than for the light they indirectly throw on his personality and genius. The description which Emerson gave of his own poetic talent may be applied totidem verbis to that of Thoreau. I am born a poet of a low class without a doubt, yet a poet. My singing, be sure, is very husky and is for the most part in prose. Still, I am a poet in the sense of a perceiver and dear lover of the harmonies that are in the soul and in matter, and specially of the correspondence between these and those. The Rose Poems were mostly written from 1837 to 1847, when he was between twenty and thirty years of age. It was his method to jot down in his journal a stanza or two from time to time, and afterwards to combine these scattered pieces into a connected poem, each verse of which would thus be brief, pointed, and sententious he had been strongly influenced by his early readings in the seventeenth-century school, and the resemblance in his style to that of Herbert, Cowley, and other writers of that era is very striking, his poetry being distinctly of the same gnomic order, abounding in quaint conceits, thrifty maxims, and elaborate antitheses, with here and there a dainty stanza or series of stanzas marked by deep insight and felicitous expression his idea of the poet's vocation is characteristic the poet is no tender slip of fairy stock but the toughest son of earth and heaven and by his greater strength and endurance his fainting companions will recognize the god in him he will hit the nail on the head and we shall not know the strength of his hammer thus in his poems he is less the artist than the moralist but the delicacy and nobility of the thought often lift the rough unpolished lines out of the region of commonplace, and make them pleasing and memorable. Take, for instance, this fine piece of blank verse from The Natural History of Massachusetts, 1842. Within the circuit of this plodding life there enter moments of an azure hue, untarnished fair as is the violet or anemone when the spring strews them by some meandering rivulet which make the best philosophy untrue that aims but to console man for his grievances i have remembered when the winter came high in my chamber in the frosty nights when in the still light of the cheerful moon On every twig and rail and jutting spout the icy spears were adding to their length against the arrows of the coming sun how in the shimmering noon of summer past some unrecorded beam slanted across the upland pastures where the john's wort grew or heard amid the verdure of my mind, the bee's long-smothered hum on the blue flag loitering amidst the mead, or busy rill, which now through all its course stands still and dumb, its own memorial purling at its play along the slopes and through the meadows next until its youthful sound was hushed at last in the staid current of the lowland stream, or seen the furrows shine but late upturned, and where the field fair followed in the rear. When all the fields around lay bound and hoar beneath a thick integument of snow, so by God's cheap economy made rich, to go upon my winter's task again. Many of Thoreau's early poems found publication in The Dial, and met with much ridicule in critical and anti-transcendental circles. We are told that an unquenchable laughter, like that of the gods at Vulcan's limping, went up over his ragged and halting lines. He afterwards included some of these pieces in the week and other prose volumes, preferring, after the discontinuance of the dial, not to publish them separately, but as choruses or hymns or word pictures to illustrate the movement of his thought he told a friend during his last illness that he had destroyed many of his verses because emerson did not praise them an act which he afterwards regretted a large number of thoreau's poems may be found in the week and a few were reprinted by emerson in an appendix to the volume of letters but the first collection that can at all claim to be a representative one is that published in 1895 under the title of poems of nature the final conclusion of the reader will probably be that the best poetry of thoreau's nature found expression in his prose great prose of equal elevation he thinks commands our respect More than great verse, since it implies a more permanent and level height, and a life pervaded with the grandeur of the thought. The poet only makes an eruption like a Parthian, and is off again, shooting while he retreats, but the prose writer has conquered like a Roman and settled colonies. and of chapter ten chapter eleven of life of henry david thoreau by henry salt this libravox recording is in the public domain chapter eleven thus as we have seen the most vigorous protest ever raised against that artificiality in life and literature which is one of the chief dangers of our complex civilization proceeded not from some sleepy old world province which might have been expected to be unable to keep pace with a progressive age but from the heart of the busiest and most advanced nation on the globe It is to Yankee-land that we owe the example and the teaching of the bachelor of nature. The personality of Thoreau is so singular and so unique that it seems useless to attempt, as some have done, to draw out any elaborate parallel between his character and that of other social or unsocial reformers who have protested against some prevalent tendency in the age in which they lived those who are interested in seeking for literary prototypes may perhaps in this case find one in abraham cowley a member of that school of gnomic poets with which thoreau was so familiar and, moreover, a zealous lover of the peace and solitude of nature. He lived in close retirement during the later years of his life, and his death, which, like Thoreau's, was due to a cold caught while he was botanizing, is attributed by his biographer to his very delight in the country and the fields, which he had long fancied above all other pleasures. Some of Cowley's remarks in his essays on solitude are conceived in a spirit very similar to that of Thoreau. The first minister of state, he says, has not so much business in public as a wise man in private. If the one has little leisure to be alone, the other has less leisure to be in company." The one has but part of the affairs of one nation, the other all the works of God and nature under his consideration. And elsewhere he expresses the wish that men could unravel all they have woven, that we might have our woods and our innocence again, instead of our castles and our policies. But these parallels between two men of widely different periods and purposes can contain nothing more than slight and superficial resemblances nor except for his general connection with emerson and the transcendentalists is it more easy to match thoreau with any ethical writer of his own generation as a poet naturalist however Thoreau is distinctly akin to Richard Jeffreys and other writers of that school. Jeffreys' character was richer and more sensuous than Thoreau's, but they had the same mystic religious temperament, the same impatience of tradition and conventionality, the same passionate love of woods and fields and streams and the same gift of brilliant language in which to record their observations it is curious to compare these modern devotees of country life with the old-fashioned naturalists of whom isaac walton and gilbert white are the most illustrious examples while the honest old angler prattles on contentedly like the babbling streams by which he spent his days, with here and there a pious reflection on the beneficence of providence and the adaptation of means to ends, and while the kindly naturalist of Selborne devotes himself absolutely and unreservedly to the work of chronicling the fauna and flora of the district about which he writes, these later authors have brought to the treatment of similar subjects a far deeper insight into the beauty and pathos of nature and a power of poetical description which was not dreamed of by their simple yet no less devoted predecessors it is mainly to thoreau in america and to jeffreys in england that we owe the recognition and study of what may be called the poetry of natural history, a style of thought and writing which is peculiar to the last thirty or forty years. The study of nature has, of course, been from time immemorial one of the great subjects of poetry, but so far it was nature and its more general aspects it was not till comparatively recent years that there was discovered to be poetry also in the accurate and patient observation of natural phenomena we have now learnt that natural history which was formerly regarded as a grave and meritorious study of a distinctly prosaic kind may be made to yield material for the most imaginative and poetical reflections when thoreau died in eighteen sixty two richard Jeffreys was a boy of fourteen busily engaged among his native wiltshire downs in laying the foundation of his wonderful knowledge of outdoor life as far as i am aware there is no mention of thoreau in his writings nor any indication that he had read him yet one is often struck by suggestive resemblances in their manner of thought take for instance that half serious half whimsical contention of thoreau's which has probably been more misunderstood than any other of his sayings that concord in its natural features contains all the phenomena that travellers have noted elsewhere, and compare it with the following opinion expressed by Jeffreys. It has long been one of my fancies that this country is an epitome of the natural world, and that if anyone has come really into contact with its productions, and is familiar with them, and what they mean and represent— then he has a knowledge of all that exists on the earth. In reading these words, one has a difficulty in remembering that they were not written by Thoreau. The association of Thoreau's name with the district in which he lived and died is likely to become closer and closer as the years go on. Great nature lovers, it has been truly remarked, have the faculty of stamping the impress of their own character on whole regions of country, so that there are certain places which belong by supreme and indisputable right to certain persons who have made them peculiarly and perpetually their own, as the Lake District is inseparably connected with the names of the poets who dwelt and wrote there as the scotch borderland owns close allegiance to scott and the Ayrshire fields to burns and as the little hampshire village of selborne is the inalienable property of gilbert white so the thoughts of those who visit concord turn inevitably to thoreau thoreau's affections and genius says one of his admirers were so indissolubly bound up with this country that now he is gone, he presents himself to my mind as one of these local genii, or deified men, whom the Scandinavian mythology gave as guardians to the northern coasts and mountains. These beings kept off murren from the cattle and sickness from men. They made the nights sweet and salubrious and the days productive. If Thoreau had lived in the early ages of Greece, he would have taken his place in the popular imagination along with his favorite god Pan. That a personality so stubbornly and aggressively independent as Thoreau's would be a stumbling block to many critics, good and bad alike, "'might have been foreseen, and indeed was foreseen from the first. "'What an easy task it would be,' said one who understood him unusually well, "'for a lively and not entirely scrupulous pen to ridicule his notions "'and raise such a cloud of ink in the clear medium as entirely to obscure his true and noble traits.' footnote John Weiss Christian Examiner July 1865 and footnote Just 3 months after these prophetic words were written appeared Mr Lowell's well-known criticism of Thoreau in the North American Review afterwards reprinted in my study windows an essay which was a masterpiece of hostile innuendo and ingenious misrepresentation written with all the cleverness and brilliancy of which its author was capable mr lowell who had been one of thoreau's fellow students at harvard university had held friendly relations with him after the close of their college career had certainly not made the discovery of his intellectual feebleness at the time of the publication of the week on the concord river in eighteen forty nine for in that same year he highly eulogized him in the massachusetts quarterly as one of those rare persons who in a utilitarian age can still feel and express the almost indefinable charm of wild nature and further spoke of him in a tone of much personal friendliness ten years later however this friendly acquaintance was sharply terminated by a difference which arose as already mentioned about an article contributed by Thoreau to the Atlantic Monthly, then under Mr. Lowell's editorship, and we have it stated, on Emerson's authority, that Mr. Lowell never forgave Thoreau for having wounded his self-consciousness, presumably in a correspondence that arose on this subject.' I make no apology for calling attention to this nexus of events, because it furnishes the explanation of the otherwise strange animus which underlies Lowell's article. Brilliant as is the view obtained from my study windows, it ought to be more generally known that there is at least one pane therein which is discoloured and distorted and which cannot be trusted by those literary students who would keep an unprejudiced outlook. A skulker is the phrase in which Mr. R. L. Stevenson summed up Thoreau's character in his essay in Men and Books, but as he himself admits in the later written preface that he had quite misread Thoreau through lack of sufficient knowledge of his life, There is no reason why admirers of Walden should feel disturbed at the bestowal of that singularly inappropriate epithet. Other critics, again, while enjoying much of Thoreau's writing, have been haunted by a suspicion that he was the victim of a theatrical self-consciousness and that he became a hermit rather to attract attention than to avoid it we have a mistrust of the sincerity of the st simeon stylites said a contemporary reviewer of walden and suspect that they come down from the pillars in the night-time when nobody is looking at them diogenes placed his tub where alexander would be sure of seeing it and mr thoreau ingeniously confesses that he went out to dine so inconceivable does it seem to those who have not considered much less practiced a simple and frugal life that a man should deliberately and for his own pleasure abandon what they believe to be luxuries and comforts that critics are always discovering some far-fetched and non-existent object in the walden experiment while they miss its true and salutary lessons. It seems scarcely necessary nowadays to rebut the absurd charge of selfishness, which used once to be brought against Thoreau. But the charge still crops up now and then in belated circles of thought. The general impression of the reader, says the Church Quarterly Review, is that, While the descriptions of scenery are extremely beautiful, and the notes about animal life and plants are most interesting, yet the man himself is thoroughly selfish, quite out of sympathy with men and their sufferings, barbaric if not animal in his tastes, and needlessly profane. Footnote October 1895 the rose lack of ambition is another point that has caused him to be much misunderstood. Even Emerson gave his sanction to this rather futile complaint. I cannot help counting it as a fault in him, he said, that he had no ambition. Wanting this, instead of engineering for all America, he was the captain of a huckleberry party. Pounding beans is good to the end of pounding empires one of these days, but if, at the end of years, it is still only beans. But the obvious answer to this criticism is that, in Thoreau's case, it was not only beans. The chapter on the bean field in Walden is one of the most imaginative and mystic in all his works— it was no longer beans that i hoed he says nor i that hoed beans for the object of his quest and labor was not the actual huckleberry nor the tangible bean but the glorified and idealized fruit of a lifetime spent in communion with nature which imparted to his writings a freshness and fragrance as of nature itself in this matter thoreau was the wiser judge of his own powers and conferred a far greater benefit on the human race by writing walden than he could have done by engineering for all america after all that has been said in this book of thoreau's great debt to emerson it may i think be added without prejudice or ingratitude that the common misapprehension of Thoreau's character must be partly traced back to Emerson's biographical sketch and to his unfortunate manner of editing the letters and poems. That excessive insistence on Thoreau's stoicism to the subordination of his gentler and more affectionate traits has done much to postpone a general recognition of the deep tenderness that underlay the rugged nature and rough sayings of the author of walden it is said that as thoreau's character matured and hardened his friendship with emerson grew somewhat roman and austere and we may be permitted to doubt whether emerson had really gauged his friend's mind as fully as he imagined that Thoreau, on his side was sensible of emerson's limitations is proved by the opinion which he expressed to a friend that emerson would be classed by posterity with sir thomas brown an estimate far lower than the usual one and here i would hazard the suggestion though well aware that it must at present seem fantastic, that Thoreau's genius will eventually be at least as highly valued as Emerson's. No sane critic could for a moment doubt the mighty influence which Emerson's great and beneficent intellect wielded among his contemporaries, or dream of comparing Thoreau with him as a nineteenth-century power but the class of mind which has the most lasting hold on men's interest and homage is not always and not often the same as that which rules contemporary thought and in the long run the race is to the most brilliant rather than to the most balanced of writers to the poet rather than to the philosopher to him who most keenly challenges the curiosity and imagination of his readers. Of all the Concord Group, by far the most inspired, stimulating, and vital personality is Thoreau's, and when time has softened down the friction caused by superficial blemishes and misunderstandings, the world will realize that it was no mere Emersonian disciple, but a mastermind and heart of hearts who left that burning message to his fellow men. The sum of the whole matter is that Thoreau had a clear and definite object before him, which he followed with inflexible earnestness, and that his very faults and oddities subserved the main purpose of his life there is a providence in his writings says john vice which ought to protect him from the complaint that he was not somebody else no man ever lived who paid more ardent and unselfish attention to his business if pure minds are sent into the world upon errands with strict injunction not to stray by other paths the rose certainly was one of these elect a great deal of criticism is inspired by the inability to perceive the function and predestined quality of the man who passes in review it only succeeds in explaining the difference between him and the critic such a decided fact as a man of genius is ought to be gratefully accepted and interpreted that Thoreau's doctrines, no less than his character, have their shortcomings and imperfections, few will be disposed to deny. He could not realize, or perhaps did not care to realize, the immense scope and complexity of the whole social problem. He had scarcely the data or opportunities for doing so. And in any case, his intensely individualistic nature would probably have incapacitated him. We therefore cannot look to him for any full and satisfactory solution of the difficulties by which our modern civilization is surrounded, but it would be a great error to conclude that we are not to look to him at all. If it is true that the deadlock resulting from the antagonism of labor and capital can never be relieved without external legislation, it is equally true that there can be no real regeneration of society without the self-improvement of the individual man. It is idle to assert that the one or the other must come first. Both are necessary and the two must be carried on side by side in thoreau the social instinct was deficient or undeveloped but on the other hand he has set forth the gospel of the higher intellectual individualism with more force and ability than any modern writer if it be but a half-truth that he preaches it is nonetheless a half-truth of the utmost moment and significance. As to Thoreau, says Edward Carpenter, in England's Ideal, a volume worthy to rank with Walden in the literature of plain living and high thinking, the real truth about him is that he was a thorough economist. He reduced life to its simplest terms— and having, so to speak, labor in his right hand, and its reward in his left, he had no difficulty in seeing what was worth laboring for and what was not, and no hesitation in discarding things which he did not think worth the time or trouble of production. We have seen that he was not, like Emerson, a philosopher of wide, far-reaching sympathies and cautious judicial temperament, but rather a prophet and monitor, outspoken, unsparing, irreconcilable. He addressed himself to the correction of certain popular tendencies which he perceived to be mischievous and delusive, and preached what may be comprehensively termed a gospel of simplicity, in direct antagonism to the prevailing tone of a self-indulgent and artificial society. Who will venture to say that the protest was not needed then, that it is not still more needed now? The years which have passed, says a well-known writer, since Thoreau came back out of Walden Wood to attend to his father's business of pencil making, have added more than the previous century to the trappings and baggage of social life, which he held and taught by precept and example that men would be both better and happier for doing without and while we succumb and fall year by year more under the dominion of these trappings, and life gets more and more overlaid with one kind and another of upholsteries, the idea of something simpler and nobler probably never haunted men's minds more than at this time. Footnote. Mr. T. Hughes, Academy. 17th of November, 1877. Herein lies the strength of Thoreau's position, that the very excess of the evil which turns our supposed comforts into discomforts, and our luxuries into burdens, must at last induce us to listen to the voice of sobriety and reason. As to the manner in which Thoreau expresses his convictions, nothing more need here be said, except that his style is justly adapted to his sentiments. His knock-down blows at current opinion are likened by Mr. R. L. Stevenson to the posers of a child, which leave the orthodox in a kind of speechless agony. They know the thing is nonsense they are sure there must be an answer yet somehow they cannot find it we may shrewdly doubt whether the conclusive answer will ever be forthcoming but it is something that people should be at all aroused from the complacent lethargy of custom and tradition the row is thus seen to have a quickening stimulating and at times exasperating effect as an ethical teacher it is no part of his object to prophesy smooth things to deal tenderly with the weaknesses of his readers or even to explain those features of his doctrine which from their novelty or unpopularity are most likely to be misunderstood this being so His character and writings were certain to prove as distasteful to some readers as they are attractive to others. If he is a good deal misapplied at present, time will set that right. In conclusion, we see in Thoreau the extraordinary product of an extraordinary era. His strange, self-centered, solitary figure, unique in the annals of literature, challenges attention by its originality, audacity, and independence. He had, it has been well remarked, a constitutional no in him. He renounced much that other men held dear, and set his heart on objects which to the world seemed valueless. It was part of his mission to question, to deny, to contradict. But his genius was not only of the negative and destructive order. In an age when not one man in a thousand had a real sympathy with nature, he attained to an almost miraculous acquaintance with her most cherished secrets. In an age of pessimism, when most men, as he himself expresses it, lead lives of quiet desperation, he was filled with an absolute confidence in the justice and benevolence of his destiny. In an age of artificial complexity, when the ideal is unduly divorced from the practical, and society stands in false antagonism to nature, he, a devout pantheist, saw everywhere simplicity, oneness, relationship. In his view— god was not to be considered apart from the material world nor was man to be set above and aloof from the rest of creation and the lower forms of life he tracked everywhere the same divine intelligence in animate nature there was none since all was instinct with the same universal spirit it was his purpose in a word to civilize nature with the highest intuitions of the mind which show her simplicity to restless and artificial men this ideal he pursued as we have seen with a rare courage sincerity and self-devotion whether he succeeded or failed in his endeavor is a question which time alone can fully answer his example and doctrines were coldly and incredulously received during his lifetime by most of those with whom he came in contact and his comparatively early death cut him off in the prime of his vigor from reaping the harvest he had sown with such patience and assiduity so far his career like that of most idealists must be confessed a failure but these are not the tests by which idealists least of all thoreau can be judged for he enjoyed in the first place that priceless and inalienable success which consists in perfect serenity of mind and contentment with one's own fortunes if the day and night he says in walden are such that you greet them with joy and life emits a fragrance like flowers and sweet-scented herbs, is the more elastic, starry, and immortal. That is your success. And secondly, he had the assurance, which is seldom denied to a great man, that the true value of his work would ultimately be recognized and appreciated." During the period that has passed since his death, his fame has steadily increased both in America and England, and is destined to increase yet further. The blemishes and mannerisms of Thoreau's character are written on its surface, easy to be read by the indifferent passerby who may miss the strong and sterling faculties that underlie them his lack of geniality, his rusticity, his occasional littleness of tone and temper, his impatience of custom, degenerating sometimes into injustice, his too sensitive self-consciousness, his trick of overstatement in the expression of his views, these were incidental failings which did not mar the essential nobility of his nature we shall do wisely in taking him just as he is neither shutting our eyes to his defects nor greatly deploring their existence but remembering that in so genuine and distinctive an individuality the faults have their due place and proportion no less than the virtues had he added the merits he lacked to those which he possessed had he combined the social with the individual qualities had he been more catholic in his philosophy and more guarded in his expression then we might indeed have admired him more but should scarcely have loved him so well for his character Whatever it gained in fullness would have missed the peculiar freshness and piquancy which are now its chief attraction. Whatever else he might have been, he would not have been Thoreau. End of chapter eleven. Read by Phyllis Vincelli. End of Life of Henry David Thoreau by Henry Salt.